Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church and our sermon this morning in the series of Mark. This series in the Gospel of Mark is entitled Incredible. And today we transition from Jesus' judgment of the temple to his confrontation of the temple authorities. It will take place in Jerusalem. It will take place on Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life. But the operative term here is authority. In fact, the title of the message this morning is The Ultimate Authority. Turn to Mark 11, 27. The Ultimate Authority, Mark 11, 27. See, the question that drives the text, really the question that drives the gospel of Mark, it's about authority. The ultimate authority. Here's the question. Who has it? Who has it? Who is the ultimate authority? Beginning in... Mark eleven twenty seven, which is where our text begins today, and really going all the way to the end of chapter 12, Mark will present to us a series of seven conflict stories, and the conflict surrounds authority. Who has ultimate authority? We're going to investigate here several of these conflict stories. So I want us to listen. I want us to listen to Jesus as he answers the question of who has ultimate authority. He is going to hear in a very specific way, reveal his authority and describe his authority. And he's going to do it in the series of seven conflict stories with the Jewish authorities in the seat of their authority, the very temple in Jerusalem. So let's listen in. But you know, before we listen in, as you're turning to Mark eleven let let's just let's pray one more time. Let's pray that God open our hearts and minds. Because at our core, dear friends, so often, we don't like authority. We are rebels by nature, our fallen nature. And we would far rather be the ultimate authority than worship the ultimate authority. Thank God most of us have been redeemed. So God has changed our hearts, but there's still something in there that doesn't like authority. So may we hear God's word as authoritative and see and recognize Jesus as the ultimate authority and render unto Jesus what belongs to him. May God give us the grace to receive mercy for that this morning. So let's pray for that. Lord, open our ears. Lord, open our hearts. Lord, may we put to death the flesh that rebels against you. And may we receive the kindness and peace of kneeling before you as Zeke so well led us and say, you are Lord. I'm not Lord. Your will be done, not my will be done. Lord, we are chronic offenders in this area. Give us your grace to live at peace as we recognize you as the ultimate authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' authority is the driving concept of the book of Mark. And it's the driving concept of our text. So let's read. Let's read the initial conflict story here in Mark eleven twenty seven. 27. You there? And they, the disciples, came to Jerusalem. This would be Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life what some would call Holy Week. This is Tuesday now. So they come to Jerusalem again, 
And he, Jesus, was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. It's on. Round one of the fight is on. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. After they, the Sanhedrin, discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then do you, did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's a seven round fight. There are seven conflict stories. This is round one. Three times in round one, we see this phrase. By what authority, by what authority... Are you doing or do you do the things that you're doing? It sets the tone for these seven conflict stories, these seven rounds. It's the third day of Holy Week. It's Tuesday. Jesus is walking into the temple. He goes into the arena. He understands that here on Tuesday is where he's going to have this seven-round fight with the ultimate authorities. Jesus has been waiting for the right time. This is the right time. The authorities have been itching for a fight. And so Jesus... Walks into the temple, if you'll show the picture of the temple. So 35-acre temple mount, here's the temple itself, here are the courts, the Gentiles' courts. So he's walking somewhere around here. He knows he's going to get jumped. I mean, it's not a fair fight, it's going to be Jesus against three. We'll see this in a moment. But he's ready for the fight. Because it's time to reveal his authority. Who is the ultimate authority? And as he walks through the temple... Three times this phrase, by what authority are you doing these things, is mentioned in these seven verses. Now the things that they are talking about are most likely things like, in chapter 2, when Jesus said to a lame man, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) By what authority do you do that? Only God can forgive sins. Exactly. Or in chapter 2, when he called tax collectors to himself, they are unclean. What are you doing? You can't do that. Or as well in chapter 2, when he redefines the Sabbath and adjusts it for him. Like, by what authority are you doing these things? Or just the day before, what we preached last Sunday. Who gave you the authority, Jesus, to come in here and turn our religion upside down, kicking out those who were selling pigeons and those who were changing money? And declaring the stuff you're declaring. Sounds like you're judging the temple. What gives you the right? Who gave you the authority? It's a good question. Dangerous question. I mean, they came out. I mean, ding. And they came out and they threw about 15 combinations. And they wanted to knock him out. 
Because they knew in the first century, if you claimed the wrong authority, if you claimed God's authority, and it wasn't God's authority, by their law, they could kill you. It's exactly what they wanted to do. But it wasn't time for Jesus to die yet. He would give himself to them in just a few days on Friday, but not on Tuesday. On Tuesday, it's all about defining who is in authority. And so what does Jesus do? Ducks their punches? Man, and he throws a wicked uppercut. What is that wicked uppercut? It's this question. It's this question. Verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. You ready? Here it comes. They're leaning in. He's about to just, boom. Here's the question. Was, verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? See, what's, what's, at, what's at, at stake here is who is the ultimate authority. And actually, what Jesus is going for, really point one of this, is he's going for them to recognize that Jesus is the ultimate authority. Now, how is that, Al? How is this a fierce uppercut as they're leaning in, rocking their head back? Here's how it is. It's at John's baptism that Jesus' authority was revealed. Think about it. Remember back at the baptism? What happened at the baptism of John? It was there that the heavens opened. It was there that the Spirit descended. It was there that God spoke what? This is my beloved Son. There is your authority. This is where Jesus' authority is revealed for all to hear and see. So, there, so Jesus says, is, was John's baptism from heaven? Back then, the Jew would not say the word God. So from heaven means from God. Okay? Or was it from man? What's at issue is, would they recognize Jesus as the ultimate authority? So they came out with the flurry, and man, that one shot just rocked them. They suddenly went from aggressive to totally defensive. They're stumbling backward. And we listen to what they're thinking and saying as they stumble backward. Look at it. You know, I love this, right? Mark is writing probably Peter's account of this. He's standing. He's got a ringside seat. The sweat's kind of flying on him. Maybe a little blood. Sorry. And, um, <laughs> and, and listen to what they say. Look at verse 31. And they discussed it with one another. You know, they're shaking their head right now. The, the, their ears are ringing. Here's what they discussed. If we say from heaven, then he's going to ask why we didn't believe him. But if we say from man that the people will revolt, because the people believe that John was from, if we say from earth, the people will revolt because the people think that John was from heaven, that he was a prophet. So they were rocked. They were rocked. And as they stumble into the ropes and are just sort of like got their hands up in a defensive uh, uh, posture, what do they say? They say to him in verse 33, we do not know. And Jesus, as the bell is ringing at the end of round one, he says, well, neither will I tell you from where my authority comes. Now he will, by the way. He will on Friday at, at the trial and they will crucify him. But it wasn't yet time. 
Because Jesus was the ultimate authority. Round one goes to Jesus. Round one goes to Jesus. Because listen, Jesus will not reveal himself to those who are unwilling to recognize his authority. They had no intention of recognizing his authority. He was on their turf, they thought. He is the temple. (laughs) But he was on their turf. And they weren't going to recognize his authority. And Jesus would not reveal himself to them. Those unwilling to recognize Jesus as the Son of God will not, will not see him as such. Those who see themselves rather than God as the center of their life, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, thought of themselves. They, they will not. They will not recognize Jesus as the ultimate authority. And so my appeal to you, church, particularly if you're here as an unbeliever, will you please recognize Jesus as the ultimate authority of your life. Please. He is. He is. All right, round two. Round two here in our bout is found in chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. In this round, as soon as the bell rings, Jesus opens with his own flurry of punches in the form of a parable. Do you see it in your Bible there? It's called the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants. Let me just read verse, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And he, Jesus, began to, tell, to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Tenant farming was well known in Israel at that time. An owner would buy some land, he would plant a vineyard, he would then hire tenants, the tenants would come and farm the land, but the owner expected some of the produce of the farm, some of the, pro, some of the, the fruit of the vineyard. Well, in this story, in this story, God is the owner, and he plants the vineyard, that's Israel. And he assigns tenants. Those are the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin. And at the time, at the season to give fruit, God expects some of the fruit. And the tenants, the present leaders of Israel, refuse to give God the fruit. Where does Jesus get this? Number one, it's something that everybody would understand from their current economy. They understood tenant farming. They understood landlords. They understood vineyards. They understood all that. And as a Jew, they understood Isaiah 5. One and two, that describes Israel exactly this way. Look at it on the screen, Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. But... It produced only worthless ones. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Going back to the parable that Jesus is telling uh, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin here, he goes on to say that the owner of the vineyard would send his servants to get the fruit and they would not give the servants any fruit. On the other hand, they would beat them up and they killed some. And the, and the owner thinking, I'll send my son who is the true heir of the vineyard, they certainly respect him. And they saw the son coming. And they said, aha, here's our chance to kill the owner's 
son and the vineyard would be ours. So they killed the son. And let me tell you something. This flurry of punches Jesus is throwing is landing every single one. These guys, this Sanhedrin, they know exactly what's going on here. Jesus is talking about them. Jesus knows that they want to kill him. Jesus is the son of God. They refuse to recognize him as such, but that's a key theme in Mark. He is. And they're going to kill him in just a couple of days. And they think that if they kill God, they can be God. You ever been in that position? Metaphorically speaking. They refuse to recognize Jesus as the ultimate authority. And so what does Jesus say? Look at verse 10. Devastating. This shot is devastating. I'm not sure if this is a crisp jab or a vicious hook. It doesn't matter. It's bam, bam. Verse 10 of chapter 12. Jesus saying to them, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Though the tenants, the leaders of Israel, would reject Jesus as the chief cornerstone, as the rock upon which God's house would be built, that stone that is going to be rejected, listen, three times from chapter 8 to chapter 10, Jesus predicted and prophesied his rejection, his beating, his crucifixion. God ordained it to happen. But that very stone that they reject will be the cornerstone of a new temple, a new people, Jew and Gentile, meeting in Jesus. That, that is what Jesus was telling them. That is what Jesus was telling him. As a matter of fact, in the parable, when Jesus asked them, what should the owner do to the tenants? Everybody listening to that parable would have been leaning in and would have said, oh, he's going to kill him. You see what I'm saying? Jesus knew the way they did business there. Everybody's saying, it's unfair. The, the owner owns the land. The tenants aren't giving the owner some of the produce. What should he do if they kill all his servants? That's the prophets in the Old Testament. And his son, that's Jesus. Well, of course, what should they do? We would have all done the same thing. Jesus says, so what should the owner do? And everybody's going, kill him. Some of you are a little louder than others because you know, you're more passionate. Your blood's a little you know, fiery. <laughs> and then Jesus turns to him and says, look, that stone that you rejected me, it's going to be the cornerstone. And then verse 11, it says, this, this is, is, is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is saying, this has been God's plan from the beginning. Jesus isn't stumbling into Jerusalem and, and, and going to lose a fight. No, no, Jesus has picked the fight. He's going to win these rounds, but he's going to give himself to be crucified. And that stone that was rejected and crucified and beaten and mocked and scourged three days later will rise from the dead and be the chief cornerstone. The one upon whom the building is built. God's new people, Jew and Gentile. Oh, friends. Oh, friends. This rejection was painful. Jesus was speaking this, knowing what he would endure in just a couple of days. The rejection of the Father. The physical pain of crucifixion and flogging. The the Father turning his face to Jesus. He understood it. And he understood it. And so when the church in Rome received the gospel of Mark some years later, it so blessed them. Because they were going through persecution. Nero was devastating them. And it was encouraging to them. Stand fast. For the Son of God, the Son of God, the cornerstone, the all-powerful one who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he's for you. 
be encouraged. The strong son of God, the ultimate authority is for us. Don't we need that church? We too need that hope. A church that is opposed by the world and increasingly by our own government. At times caught in compromise, yes. At times confused, yes. But led by the risen Lord Jesus who ascended into heaven and is interceding for us right now. In our prayer time this morning, someone prayed, Jesus, thank you that you're my prophet, priest, and king. You're my priest interceding for me, making it possible for me to relate to God, the Father, by your blood. And you're my king fighting my battles for me. Fight on, King Jesus. May we be courageous and faithful. Here's the application. Do you recognize Jesus as the ultimate authority in your life? Or is the ultimate authority in your life your opinion? Your friends' opinions? Your pocketbook? Your career? (laughs) To whom do you answer ultimately? Is it Jesus? That's the question. It's the question that is out there in this narrative. That's the question that is out there. And that's the question then that leads us to point two. Recognizing Jesus as the ultimate authority, then we must render to Jesus what belongs to him. Render to Jesus what belongs to him. The next three rounds of this conflict series are all going to be spoken with the backdrop of this parable, this big parable he just told. You see, the end of the parable, look at verse 12 of chapter 12. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. So he won that round, but they said, okay, we're going to arrest him, and we want to ultimately kill him. So the next couple of rounds, the next conflict stories, are the, 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 sad, the Sanhedrin sending in different teams. It's an unfair fight. Now, it's not unfair in the way you think. You would think, and I would think, it's unfair, one against three. That's not what's unfair. What's unfair is any of the three thought they could beat the one. (laughs) Any of the three thought they could beat the one. So the first group that the Sanhedrin sends in are Team Pharisee. And Team Pharisee has a plan. Look at verse 13 and 14. We're going to go into the ring and we're going to try to get Jesus to drop his guard. So how do they do that? Look at verse 14. They flatter him. And they came to him. You with me? 12, 14. And they came to him and said to him, teacher. So first of all, they call him teacher. So that's an honor. We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. But truly, you teach the way of God. It's kind of like, bam, bam, giving you body blows so you drop your hands. And then here, here comes their vicious right hook. You ready? They're going to nail, they're going to deck him with this one. Is it lawful? I'm reading in verse 14b. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This round is getting pretty serious here. Jesus has now faced with a pretty serious assault. What's he going to do? Well, let me explain the tax to you. First of all, the tax was paid in a denarius, which was one day's salary. And it was a highly unpopular tax. Tell me a tax that's popular. But they had Jesus. I mean, they, they swung at him because if he said, yeah, pay the tax, he would lose all credibility with the people. But if he said, no, don't pay the tax, 
Rome would come down on Jesus with all of its force. You try not paying your taxes. Yeah. Uncle Sugar is going to knock on your door, reach into your pocket. So what's he going to do? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Well, he says he knew their hypocrisy, verse 15. And then he said, give me a Daenerys. And here's a Daenerys, okay? This is the actual Daenerys. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, So this is Tiberius uh, Tiberius Caesar. This is his mom on the back who is something with wisdom. So he says, give me that Daenerys. And then he says to them the famous uh, phrase that we all probably know, probably the only part of the Bible anybody knows. And Jesus said to them uh, in verse 16, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. All right, so obviously there it is. There's Caesar's. And then 17, Jesus said to them, Man, this, this rocked them right here. I mean, this connected with the jaw right here. They went, down, they went to one knee on this one. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Here's the deal. And by the way, he was there for uh, uh, legitimizing government, human government, and the right to govern and, and, and impose taxes. Okay, So here's what he's saying. Who's, can you put it back up there? Whose image is on there? Denarius. Okay. Whose image is on there? Caesar's. Oh, his image is on there? Then give him what's his. Whose image is on us? Then render that to God. God's image is on you. He owns you. You belong to him. Render to him what is his. That's his point. That's his point. That's his point. Jesus takes round three. He's knocking these guys down all over the place. But, but that's fun to think about and, and, and you know, enjoy. But here's a question for us, dear church. Listen, unbeliever, you, you are in God's image. Right now you're in rebellion to God. God is saying to you, render to me what is mine. And that's done through Jesus Christ. So I respectfully ask you to consider this. Repent and believe. That is the cry of scripture to all mankind. Believer. God has given us the grace to repent and believe. But are we rendering to Jesus what belongs to him? Are we giving to God what he owns, namely our lives? We've been bought with the price. We are not our own. Are we glorifying God with the fruit of our labors in our tithes? Are we glorifying God with the priority of our time and our attendance? Are we glorifying God with the very best of our attention and talent to serve him? It, the gospel, yes, we never move on from the gospel. But the gospel, if it's the true gospel, moves us on to give it all to God. That's the fruit of the gospel. That's the landowner saying, give me some of the fruit. Man, what he gives us is so much more than that. Because it's eternal life. But are we giving it to him? Round four. Round four, they send in team Sadducee. I could just imagine some of these teams are starting to go in a little less enthusiastic as the previous ones. (laughs) Remember, it's an unfair fight. I mean, just Jesus against all these guys. But I think the Sadducees are probably, I don't know, So, look at verse 18. The Sadducees step up to the challenge. Here's how they're going to get Jesus. They're going to get Jesus in verses 18 to 27 using something called the Leverite marriage practice. I know none of us are Jews and we don't know what the Leverite marriage practice is. Let me explain. Let me explain to you, okay? So here it is. 
And the love right marriage practice was practiced in Israel so that if a man died before his wife could have a child, the Leverite marriage practice said that his brother must marry the widow so that she could have a child so the family name could continue. Okay? So the Sadducees knew this. And so the Sadducees gave this hypothetical situation that there were seven brothers. And the first one married, no kids, died. Second one, all seven of them had been married to this woman. They all seven had died and she hadn't had a child. So they thought they had them here. Okay? I mean, this is just a bull rush. By the way, let me just tell you, you need to know this about the Sadducees. They were, they were probably very wealthy. They were the ultimate power brokers. These would have been the Ivy League guys, the Washington in crowd. These would have been the guys, the power brokers, you know. The, whatever you can think of, the behind-the-seas guys that are pulling all the strings, that's the Sadducees. They were very conservative. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they, were, they prided themselves as experts of the law, the Torah. All you needed was the Torah. Don't tell me about resurrection. I've got the Torah, okay? And they were, they were wealthy, arrogant. They just bull rushed them. I mean, this was one of those... We're just going mano mano at the middle of the ring, okay? We got you. So whose wife is she in the resurrection? <laughs> and Jesus can fight all kinds of styles. This one was the power style. He stood right in the middle of the ring. They hit him and bounced off of him like hitting a brick wall. And he just looks them right in the eyes and look at verse 24. Look what he says to them. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? (laughs) Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This to the people who prided themselves above all others as knowing the scripture. These were the Harvard grads, the Yale grads, the really smart guys. And these were the people that had all the power. And he's saying, you don't know anything and you're not, you don't understand power. Boom. I mean, just a gasp went, went across the ring at that point. Jesus, in verse 25, says to them, look at with me. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What he does is he begins an authoritative teaching on the resurrected life, okay? And you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the resurrection chapter. If you want to read a good book on the resurrected life, it's got a lot of good thoughts in it and a lot of good uh, investigation. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven. It's excellent. Think about the resurrected life. But then, in verses, in verses 26 and 27, Jesus then corrects their view of the resurrection. And listen to what he says to them. He says to them in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? He's going to reference the burning book, the burning brush, not burning book, burning brush account of Exodus 3. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And then he just says, you are quite wrong. These are people that aren't used to having anybody tell them they're quite wrong. Not even a little bit wrong. Nothing. People just say, yes, sir, and just walk on. He says, you're quite wrong. What's he saying here? He's saying this. How can you say there's no resurrection? Then God is the God of the dead because it says to Moses, years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, that he's the God, present tense of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What he's saying is this. The promises of God, promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are eternal promises. They don't die. He is the God of the living, not the dead. But even more importantly, even more importantly, in a few days, Jesus 
will back up his teaching with his actions. Because this is Tuesday. On Sunday, he will rise from the dead. And church, this is what I believe with all my heart. It's a sanctified imagination, okay? I believe that some of those Sadducees that were arguing with Jesus in the temple, some of those really smart, really powerful, perfect culture, they knew exactly how to do everything, they were dressed perfectly, I believe some of them, I believe some of them who were there arguing with Jesus on Tuesday, who were there and saw Jesus die on Friday and thought they won the fight, who were then on Sunday heard about Jesus raising from the dead, I believe those guys rendered to Jesus what belongs to him because God called them. I believe they bowed their knee and they said, you are the son of God and I'm wrong about the resurrection. That's what the gospel is. Jesus came preaching repent and believe. Will we render to Jesus what belongs to him? <laughs> Round four obviously goes to Jesus. Round five. Round five is a little bit different. This is now verses 38 to, or 28 to 34. I believe round five, the participant of round five is going in with, with really respect. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 28. By the way, round five is going to be just one single scribe. The the other rounds were multiple Pharisees, multiple Sadducees. Round five is just one guy. One guy. Look at verse 28. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him. Listen, I, I think this scribe... By the way, scribes were noted for their exposition of the law. They were experts on interpretation. I think he asked Jesus... A sincere but really difficult question. Here's the question he asked him. Verse 28. Which commandment be? Which commandment is the most important of all? Now what's going on here, Al? Well, here's what's going on. Because the scribes were experts in the law, by then there were 613 commandments of the Torah. 613. They loved the law. They really did love the word of God. And they were fascinated with trying to summarize the law. In fact, in Jesus' time, Rabbi Hillel tried to summarize the law, the Torah, with this negative version of the golden rule. What you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. A hundred years later, Rabbi Akiba tried to reduce the Torah to Leviticus 19.8. You shall love the Lord your God as yourself. And then a century after Akiba... Um, a rabbi quoted Proverbs 3.6 as summarizing the law. Uh, In all your ways acknowledge God and he will make your paths straight. And later still another rabbi named Simlai quoted Habakkuk 2.4 as a summary of the law. The righteous will live by his faith. But Jesus, Jesus summarizes the law in verse 29 this way. And by the way, let me just say this as well. When he said what's the greatest commandment, most commentators would say what he's actually asking Jesus is this. This is important. What commandment superseded all the rest? Which commandment applied to all humanity, including Gentiles? That's a a very profound question. And this is how Jesus answered in verse 29. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then verse 31. The second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So what Jesus did is he uttered the Shema, which on the screen comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and then he added Leviticus 19, 18, and he said these two are actually one And they were perfect encapsulation, A, of what it means to render to Jesus what belongs to him, and B, they summarize the law, because Jesus came to fulfill the law. There's no disjunction here. There's continuity. But Jesus spoke this so authoritatively. Jesus was the first one to unite these two. What he's saying is, the Shema can't be satisfied by you buying your pigeons and your your doves and whatever on Holy Week here on Passover and sacrificing to God. The only way you can satisfy the Shema, the only way you can satisfy God, the only way you can render to God what is His, is by loving Him from your heart. I know the text says with, but the Greek can be interpreted from your heart, from your mind, from your strength, from your soul, your very being. And in verse 32 and 33, the scribe communicated his agreement with Jesus. Isn't it funny? The scribe came to pass judgment on Jesus. Jesus ends up passing judgment on the scribe. Why? Because look what Jesus says to the scribe in verse 34. Fascinating. Verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, in other words, the scribe agreeing with Jesus, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I love what it says at the end of 34. Yeah. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> the way I thought, you know, it just, no more. <laughs> no mas. That's it. That's it. That's it. Round five is over. The narrative now ends the way it began. Look at verses 35 to 37. That narrative begins with Jesus asking, asking the, the Sanhedrin, from where do you think John's baptism came? I.e., he asked them about his authority. You tell me and I'll tell you where I get my authority from. He knew where his authority was came from. They knew. But he, he beat them there. And it ends with Jesus now asking them a question, not about his authority, but about his personhood. Hood. Who is the Son of God? Who is the Son of God? Verse 37, 35. He says to them, listen, you guys teach, the scribes teach, and how can they say that the Christ, Messiah, okay, Jesus is the Christ, Messiah is the son of David. How can that be when David himself in the Holy Spirit, by the way, here's a great proof of the inspiration of the word of God by the spirit of God. David spoke by the Holy Spirit. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and he's quoting now Psalm 110 verse 1, which is the most oft quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. And then Jesus goes on to say, if David called him Lord, how can you say that Messiah was David's son? And the narrative ends with that question hanging in the air. No one could answer. I mean, it ends with, and the great throng heard them gladly. Heard him gladly. I'm, I'm sure what they were gladly hearing was how he was just beating these pompous, Sanhedrin to a pulp. That's probably what they were enjoying. But I think they also saw some, some wisdom. But no one could answer the question. 
Because Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't risen from the dead yet. He hadn't ascended into heaven yet. The spirit hadn't been poured out yet. It would be on Pentecost. And some 50 some days later, oh, that would be answered. Oh, it would be clear. Oh, Peter would preach on the temple mount and he'd be preaching in Acts chapter two. And he'd be saying, hey, listen, it's not talking here about David. David's not talking about himself because David's right over there. And he would point to David's tomb and he'd say he's talking about Jesus Christ, the one you crucified. I could just imagine on that moment that one of those Sadducees just hit the ground. I pray you hit the ground. That my words would be, would, would just, by the Spirit of God, nail you in the heart. Believer for many years or never believed, and you would just glorify God. When you realize who Jesus is and you realize what he's done for you, and you say, I'm going to render to you what is yours, Jesus. It's not enough to be like this crowd who gladly heard Jesus. A few days later, they'd be gladly crying, crucify him. No, friends. Jesus commands us to render what belongs to him, to love him from our very being, heart, soul, and mind, to love our neighbors as ourselves. How can we do that this morning? How can I walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? How can I recognize Jesus as the ultimate, my ultimate authority? And how can I render to him what belongs to him? Lord, help us answer that question. Let's pray. Worship team, would you join me up front? Lord, I pray that that your word would would penetrate our our hard hearts at times. I pray your spirit would, would give life to dead hearts that are here this morning, unbelieving hearts, failing, refusing to recognize you as the ultimate authority in their lives. I pray your word would comfort grieving hearts, broken hearts, confused hearts. I pray that you, Lord Jesus, would, would give grace to us to render to you what belongs to you, Lord. When we don't, when we rebel against you in those private moments, when we, when we don't believe you. Oh, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, I... I thank you for building your church and calling your people. Lord, this church, and we are built on your word, on you, your authority, your sacrifice, your death, your resurrection, your ascension. Our hope is in your soon coming to to share in your glory, resurrected life that will be beyond anything we could ever imagine. Help us this morning to declare you as the name above all names, not just with our mouths, but with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing that song, name above all names.